You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 10. We'll be looking together at verse 23b and reading to verse 43. This is on page 919 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 10, verse 23b to verse 43. Hear the word of God. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, Your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Well, the last time we looked at the book of Acts, We considered how God revealed the mystery to Peter. In Ephesians 3, Paul tells us 
the nature of this mystery, he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In a vision from heaven, he learned that God is no respecter of persons. Peter indicated as much to Cornelius when he pointed out, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. He is judge of all the earth who does right. He gives to each one according to his work. He does not discriminate at all on the basis of race or gender, age or social rank. This is not to say that God has no criterion of judging his creatures. It's just that he doesn't judge us on the basis of ethnicity. He judges us on the basis of morality. He does so according to the character of our deeds and the nature of our works. God weighs the merits and demerits of every human being, and he judges accordingly. Romans chapter 2, Paul says as much, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And notice, it makes no difference whether you're Jew or Gentile. There's no partiality. In fact, the Old Testament Jewish privileges did not exempt them from guilt. It simply aggravated it. God never did, and he never will save an unbelieving and impenitent Jew, or Gentile for that matter. He'll never save anyone apart from Christ, regardless of how privileged they are. There will be tribulation and distress, he says, for every human being who does, not, who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. You see, God takes into account the circumstances of a person's life. The more advantages an unbeliever has, the greater the condemnation will be that he endures. That's a sobering thought. Everyone to whom much was given, said Jesus, of him much will be required. And God is righteous, rewarding those who do well and punishing those who do evil. And let me just add that God's impartiality also applies to what theologians call remunerative justice. That's a good word. <laughs> this is that by which God justifies the righteous and exalts us to glory. And all of those who trust in Jesus, he remunerates with the covenant blessings. Without partiality. God gave his word that whosoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And he never lies. He never lies. He will never break his word and he'll always keep his promise. So Peter says this good news is of peace through Jesus Christ he is Lord of all. And that last clause, though it may come as a parenthesis, is of primary importance. He is Lord of angels. He is Lord of devils. He is Lord of human beings, great and small. 
He's Lord of all, and there is not one molecule in this entire universe over which Jesus doesn't say, I'm Lord. He determines what's clean and unclean, and he decides to welcome the Gentiles. And if he does so, it happens. Because there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. And all of that that I've just said was conveyed to Peter on that rooftop before his meeting with the three messengers. Cornelius, of course, sent them to ask Peter if he would come and explain the gospel because he too had seen a vision and God was opening the door to the kingdom for Gentiles to enter in. And so Peter arrives in Caesarea where Cornelius has gathered his relatives and his close friends, a whole company of people. There were six Christian brothers who accompanied Peter and I'm struck I imagine you are too by the humility of the Roman centurion of all people who greeted the apostle. This is a battle-hardened, seasoned Roman soldier. When Peter enters, Cornelius meets him and falls down at his feet. And it says he worships him, which was inappropriate, totally inappropriate. But understandable, I think, given his ignorance and excitement. And Peter was quick to affirm his own creaturehood, lifting up the soldier. And after Cornelius rehearses his encounter with the angel, Peter begins to speak. And I think it is both interesting and instructive to examine the content of his sermon. You know, the apostolic sermons are of extreme importance. These are the authorized agents of Jesus. What did they do when they preached? And this was the first opportunity to preach before a Gentile congregation. What is Peter going to say? Which truths is he going to emphasize? How is he going to address these Gentile believers? And we find his message is centered on the person and work of Jesus. And Luke, I think, records what is probably a summary, giving us the high points. And I, I find that this contains some of the most important aspects of Christ's work. I like that saying of Spurgeon, who said, the best sermon is that which is fullest of Christ. And he's right. And that's exactly what we find. First, notice that Peter mentioned the baptism of Jesus in the waters of the River Jordan in verses 37 and 38. And if you remember, John the Baptist would have prevented him. I need to be baptized by you. But Jesus says, let it be so. So it fulfills all righteousness. And one may wonder why Peter would single out this aspect of the work of Jesus. And I think he did so partly because it was the official start of Christ's ministry on earth, his baptism. We're told in verse 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Not as if the Son of God needed power, but the Son of Man needed to be ordained. Not even Jesus himself would appropriate the office to himself. He's following protocol, just as Elder Miller read. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son today, I have begotten you. 
And yet how often in our day do people appoint themselves to office? They have this deep feeling of devotion to Christ and they assume to themselves the official privileges. Maybe it's out of good reasons. Maybe it's in pretense. And I think we all need to beware of self-appointed pastors when there is no accountability. I am thankful for the checks and balances within the Presbyterian system that we discussed in Sunday school this morning. Pastor Pylon was teaching us. This is a wonderful thing, accountability. And baptism signified that Jesus had been appointed to the great messianic work. That's why he's called Christ, the anointed one, anointed and ordained for this. The father confirming him, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus of Nazareth was invested with power and authority to serve as the mediator, and God sealed him as he had never sealed any man before or since. And here he is, the lawfully ordained mediator, embarking on his public ministry, and we're told by Peter that he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil because God was with him. I also think Peter singled out his baptism because by it he was identifying with his people. You know, the gospel, you and I cannot understand it apart from the backdrop of sin. Solomon says this, This alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And here we learn how God made man and how man unmade himself. Adam was created innocent, perfectly righteous, no distortion whatsoever. Truth permeated his mind and purity filled his heart. Holiness imbued his entire life and man was made upright, made in God's image the perfect reflection of him on earth. And yet, through the temptation of Satan, as we all understand, by his own choice, man broke the covenant. He sinned and he rebelled against his God by eating from the forbidden tree. And the whole race, all of us, being represented by Adam, fell with him into sin and misery. And so Paul writes, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... That's why we have the funerals. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So every one of us die. Death is the just and fair penalty for sin. And so Jesus comes along and he's baptized. And by that, it symbolizes his undergoing the penalty of death in our place. You say, how does that happen? Well, the waters in his baptism represent the flood waters of judgment coming over his head. That's how he would accomplish salvation by enduring the judgment for us. He didn't need to be baptized to wash away his sins because he didn't have any. But he did need to identify with us as our prophet, priest, and king. 
And as the mediator, he was authorized by the Father and sealed by the Holy Spirit. And I think at this point in Peter's sermon, they should have marveled, as should we, at the love with which the triune God loves us. Father sealing his own son to be the sin bearer for the church and the son willing to fulfill this commission and to die in our place. He said, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. That's why he's being set apart. The spirit filled him and equipped him to function as our mediator. And if you are a believer this morning, Know that as his baptism, he was sealed for you. God stands by his seal and he will not break his oath. It was for you. But then secondly, Peter mentions in his sermon the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 39. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. And both Jews and Gentiles played significant roles in the killing of Jesus. As a matter of set, matter of fact, I think it could rightly be said that you and I, all of us, played a part in the death of God's Son. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake. Yours and mine. Jesus died because you and I sinned. He endured the penalty that we deserve. And if only one of us, only one, out of all the billions of people in the world had sinned, then Jesus would have done the very same thing. And if he had not satisfied justice, then justice would not have spared us. Because God's justice is unbending. Or as we would put it, it's unyielding. And it never makes an exception. Paul says in Romans 8, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And that tells me that nothing else proves more strongly the inflexibility of divine justice than the cross. When our sins were imputed to Christ, God would not even spare his own son. If ever there was a situation in which we might expect mercy to be extended, it was the case of Jesus, right? He was perfectly holy, utterly pure, and the Bible says that he was the apple of his father's eye. And yet God didn't spare him. Mercy was denied to Jesus. So do you want to see the strictness and the severity of justice? Just look at the crucifixion. Not one moment of suffering was halted. Not one ounce of punishment was suppressed. And not one degree of wrath was held back from his own beloved Son, Jesus suffered the penalty for sin. And when he mentioned that cup that he was to drink, he was referring to the cup of wrath. Again, Elder Miller read it this morning. 
In the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That's what we should have been drinking. God's judgment on sinners is called a cup, which Jesus drank for us. And the Father couldn't bend his moral laws or wink his eye even for the sinless beloved. That's what prompted Jesus in Gethsemane to sweat great drops of blood. It wasn't the physical pain, which was awful, unthinkable. It was the curse. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And when on that cross he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's exactly what he was doing. Drinking the cup to its dregs. And let me just say this. If this is what happened to Christ, what must sinners expect for themselves? If this is the way that God dealt with his own son, how is he going to deal with unbelieving unrepentant sinners. All we can say is what the Bible says, woe to the person who must stand before a just God without a savior, because he who rejects Jesus, we're told, dies in his sins and he'll suffer the full measure of wrath. No abatement of penalty, no decrease of torment, no reduction of divine fury, none. Divine justice will not permit it, and God will not, and he cannot deny himself. So let's thank God collectively this morning for the death of Jesus by whose blood we're forgiven. Isn't that incredible? He laid down his life for the church, and he endured the cross for his own sheep. And believers were freed from the guilt of sin, never more to come under judgment, ever. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ, the believer's sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. And so David is right. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And that's the reason for gratitude and joy. But of course, to receive such mercy, one must place his trust or her trust in the Lord Jesus. And it's not a leap of faith, as we're accused of doing. This is not a leap of faith. This is a thoughtful, reasoned decision based upon clear historical evidence and credible testimony that we embrace and believe. God offers the terms of salvation that you and I both understand. And we believe in Christ. We receive forgiveness and we inherit eternal life. That's an amazing offer. And God is infinitely good, and it's perfectly reasonable. Who in their right mind would reject such an offer? Only a fool would turn it down. It makes no sense to reject it. It would be the most irrational thing not to believe it. 
Peter says to the Sanhedrin, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you believe in the judgment to come, this makes perfect sense to you. But then third, Peter mentions in his sermon the resurrection of Christ from the dead in verse 40. God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. So in the very same body in which he suffered, he came forth from the tomb. And it was really him. Witnesses saw him. They ate and drank with him. This was not a phantom. It was not some sort of vision. It was not a collaboration of deceivers. It was really Jesus Christ on the morning of the third day, raised by divine power to glorified life. And the angel rolled away the stone, and with it went the reproach of his death. He was vindicated, and every claim he ever made was thereby established. How thankful should we be for this most vital element of his work? Don't you see the entire weight of our faith, hope, and salvation rests upon his resurrection? Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Our deliverance from hell was finished upon the cross and confirmed outside the tomb. And the risen Christ was the first fruits of a great company to be raised up at the last day. You can't even number them. And just as his body was raised up in power, so will ours be raised up. Never again will our bodies be subject to weakness or suffering or death. And just as his body was glorified and crowned with honor, so will our bodies be glorified. His resurrection, mind you, assures us that we will be raised up. If you're diagnosed tomorrow with an incurable disease, that's your hope. The reunion of soul and body will be both wonderful and glorious to all eternity. I can't even think what that means. No end. We will enjoy God's blessings in both soul and body. So death, which has been called king of terrors, is now a vanquished enemy. Its sting is removed. Its victory has been overturned. And it's a reconciled friend. And that's what gave the early Christians such courage in the face of death. Just listen to this from Cyprian. He was, Cyprian was bishop of Carthage in the third century, the 200s AD. Real close to the early church. And Cyprian said this, with a sound mind, firm faith, and undaunted courage. We are ready to submit to the whole will of God, all fear of death being excluded. We think on the immortality which follows. And when the set time of God's sending for us approaches, we come to him at his call willingly and without delay. Now, I realize death and dying is a scary thing. I understand that. We all do. But we can, as Christians, face it with courage. Courage doesn't mean the absence of all fear. I think it was Lewis who said, courage is facing your fears with resolution. You can face death. 
Our bodies will one day be raised up. And if that's the case, how should we view and employ our bodies on earth? If this is true. You see, at the resurrection, they're going to be raised up in glory. So should we not use them for God now? This is one of the implications of the New Testament. It's, it's appropriate for us to use these bodies in the service of the kingdom. We should keep them from sin. We should use them for worship. When God calls us home, we may be ready to lay them down because you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. But that leads to number four in Peter's sermon, where he mentions the second coming of Jesus. He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead, so that he who was unjustly judged and condemned by wicked men, he's going to come again. And Christ will be exalted in that he will weigh all things in the balance. And everybody who has ever lived or whoever will live must give an account to him. And as he takes his seat on that great white throne, earth and sky will flee. And both great and small will stand before his throne and those books are going to be opened. What's amazing to me, and I don't know how he's going to do this, but he is infinite. Every deed with every secret thing, whether good or evil, will be judged, and nothing will escape his scrutiny. All things will be judged in righteousness. And is it not instructive that Peter did not fail to mention the judgment? Here's an apostle preaching to Gentiles. He didn't fail to mention judgment. It was no different at the Areopagus when Paul preached to the Athenians. He said to them, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. There's that word again. And of this he's given assurance to all. How? By raising him from the dead. And those learned philosophers mocked him. Just like our culture mocks us today. How foolish they were in their rejection of this critical truth. And the things that have been made in creation, all people know that there is a sovereign God. They may wish that he didn't exist because their hearts and their deeds are evil, yet deep down inside, the conscience whispers to them, there's a judgment. Made in the image of God, they cannot help but know that it's coming. It's stamped on the human nature. And that's why Peter and Paul highlight the second coming of Christ. You know it. I know it. Let's do something about it. Flee to Christ while you have time. So Jesus Christ was appointed to be the judge of the living and the dead, and we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and every person will answer for his or her deeds at the judgment to come. And he has the authority to justify or condemn, to forgive or to find fault. And that's why God commands every, everybody everywhere to repent. Acts 17.30. Because the time is fixed. 
and nothing can postpone it. Christ will preside over its solemnities, and as God, he's capable of weighing the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and he's going to separate the good from the bad as he exercises perfect scrutiny. You know that vision John had of him in Revelation 1? Those eyes like flames of fire. Perfect scrutiny. And his decision is final. Enter into the joy of your master, or... Depart from me. You were cursed. I never knew you. And when all is said and done, every creature will praise Christ because Jesus is Lord. And in the case of Cornelius, he and his household would repent and believe. Thank God. The Spirit would drive home to their hearts this message about Jesus. And as we'll see next time, it led to their conversion. But that's a segue into the fifth and final part of Peter's sermon, which refers to the blessing of pardon. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's the fruit of Christ's suffering. That's why he went to the cross. All the guilt of his people is removed. The whole punishment of sin has been endured by our substitute. And everything Jesus did and suffered had in view that benefit, forgiveness. Forgiveness is the spring of all our spiritual peace and joy. Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to consider very briefly two qualifications listed in this verse. One The blessing of forgiveness is limited to those who believe. You have to believe. God is rich in mercy, but he extends it only to those who trust in Christ. Someone and many people don't like the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and Christianity, but I didn't make the rules. God is willing to forgive all the sins of any person who trusts in Jesus. Second, his mercy is extended to sinners only through his name. He could not do this, forgiving sins consistently with with his justice, if it wasn't for Jesus. Christ's death was the atonement that satisfied the demands of justice, and therefore God can pardon us without denying his justice, We're told that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, there is no double jeopardy. Once they've been forgiven, they're always forgiven. You're clean, you're free, you're forgiven. And I think we should draw comfort from and rejoice in the universal offer of forgiveness. You know, someone said once that we should thank God for that blessed word, everyone, Verse 43, do you see it? Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. If it had said, Scott Wright may be forgiven if he believes, I would have been far less certain because I know for a fact that there are many other Scott Wrights in this world. As a matter of fact, I once was working for my dad. I was delivering a pallet of something to a warehouse I handed the clipboard to the guy receiving it. He signed it. 
I looked at it. Scott Wright. So if this had been my name, I couldn't be sure. I'm thankful that it says everyone. Therefore, I need not doubt as to whom is meant. It means whosoever. Everyone who believes in Christ will be forgiven. And if someone is not forgiven, if someone doesn't receive pardon, whose fault is that? On this day, we have the opportunity to choose. And as long as there is breath in in our lungs, there is hope. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ. And we're grateful for the sermon Peter preached, giving us an example of what it's like to proclaim the gospel to those who need to hear. Help us to trust in Christ, to rely upon him as our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.